0: Hey, everybody, Pierre Quinn here. You're listening to episode 137 of the Leading Wild Green podcast, where my mission is to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Sean Ryan, author of the new book, Getting Gear, The Seven Gears That Drive Strategy to Results. Now, before we jump into that conversation with Sean, I just want to thank you so much for supporting the Leading Wild Green podcast. You rate it. You've reviewed it, you've shared it on social media. All of your support helps us reach more leaders like you who need some support on their leadership journey. So if you haven't rated it yet, can you hop over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, rate it, leave a review, help us, help us reach more leaders who could benefit from these leadership conversations. Now we took a week off for Thanksgiving. Hopefully you had a chance to rest and to break and to collect your thoughts maybe think about the last part of the year and then set some things in motion for 2021. And if you haven't had a chance to do that yet, hopefully you'll take some time and do it because it's very, very important for you to just reflect on all the things that have happened this year and then reflect on your opportunities for next year and create a strategy around that. I want to support you. I want to empower you. If you hop over to dot slash coaching, prcquinn.com slash coaching. You can sign up for my Courageous Leadership Coaching Intensive. where We'll spend some time together reviewing 2020 and then setting a strategy for 2021. That's prcquinn.com slash coaching. Also want to thank you for joining us for the Next Step Summit Part 2. Hopefully you got a chance to hang out with us for that. If you missed the Next Step Summit Head over to YouTube, youtube.com slash Pierre Quinn, and you'll see the link for the Next Step Summit. I'll put the links in the show notes so that you can quickly get to it. I just ask, as you watch the Next Step Summit, be sure to subscribe and leave some comments as you're watching the presenters share. Okay, my guest on this episode is Sean T. Ryan. Sean is a world-renowned business consultant, speaker, trainer, and executive coach. As the founder of Whitewater International Consulting, he has worked internationally with companies such as Disney, Nucor Steel, FedEx, and Nestle Waters North America, Perrier Group of America. With more than two decades of industry experience, Sean is highly regarded for his ability to guide organizations through complex transformational change in what he describes as a world of perpetual whitewater and in our conversation, we discuss Sean's new book, Getting Gear, Seven Gears That Drive Strategy to Results. Here's my conversation with Sean Ryan. Excited to be joined on this episode of the Leading While Green podcast by Sean Ryan. Sean, thanks for being my guest today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, so have some time to begin going over your book. And there are some things in the acknowledgement section that that are important to me because there's so much, I think, that when we read books, we skip over this section, but it's full of insight. And, I, and take a few moments, Sean, to talk to me about Miller, Rick, and Art and their impact on your life and your career.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'd be glad to do that. Uh, I, was, uh, I was a student at the Georgia Tech in uh, Atlanta. And uh I crossed paths with this uh, is a, a, a wizard, essentially, a guy named uh, Miller Templeton. And uh, Miller had a bunch of different roles uh, that I interacted with him in. First, he was the dean of international students at uh, Georgia Tech, which was always cool to go hang out in uh, Miller's office uh, way back in the 1970s. Because uh, there was uh, all kinds of diversity flowing through his office on a pretty regular basis. And, you know, so for a kid growing up and kind of new to the world, uh, that was that was pretty cool to see. Uh, but uh, in, in addition to that, uh, Miller, most importantly to me in some ways, he was the head of the outdoor recreation program at uh, Georgia Tech. And uh, I've, I've often said that they were, Tech was awesome. They gave me a degree in civil engineering, uh, but I majored in backpacking and kayaking. And uh, Miller was really at the core of that program and introduced me to all kinds of things. And I, I got connected to all kinds of people that uh, I probably would have never met. And then, and then perhaps most importantly, uh, I was a, a resident advisor, a floor counselor. I started as a floor counselor in the dorm system at uh, Tech. Uh, and uh, Miller was uh, a head resident of one of the dorms that I was a floor counselor and actually one of the first ones. And it was really interesting. I mean, here's this guy who's, uh, you know, Dean, of, you know, Associate Dean of Students, uh, head resident of a dormitory. And it was uh, so he, he had this huge commitment to really developing uh, the kids like me that uh, worked for him. And uh, we would sit around at our staff meetings on Monday nights. And he was always uh, asking us to read stuff uh, really about the leadership and the human side of connecting with people. And you know, I'll readily admit I was this kind of nerdy civil engineering student. I probably didn't know much about people at all. And uh, and and what I what I learned from Miller, part of it was just kind of the the technical functional skills of interacting with people. But maybe more formative, it wouldn't have been apparent until me to me until much later, was that all, some of this people stuff, a lot of this people stuff, it's not necessarily innate you don't have to come out of the womb with great abilities to connect with people. You can actually learn that stuff. Uh, You know, you, you can learn how to, you know, as Dale Carnegie, one of the books I'll I'll never forget that Miller made us read was how to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie. And, and so just, so those thoughts in the book were helpful, but then later on, as, as I started getting into roles where I was, I was helping leaders be better leaders it became really clear to me that a lot of what we can do around leadership, we can build skills, capabilities, even if people don't come into the job necessarily with, with those roles naturally. So that was, that was hugely formative. The, the second person you mentioned was Rick Tate, uh, who uh, I started my career uh, after I left Georgia Tech. I started my career at uh, Pacific Gas Electric in California. And, and that experience by and of itself was incredibly uh, formative for me. I was at PG&E for seven years. Uh, I had seven jobs in seven years. Uh, it was a really tribute to them, the the patience of the folks at uh, at PG&E, that uh, they they kept trying to find things that I could do. I guess I guess this is the only way that I could explain seven jobs in seven years. Now, you know, each one of those jobs came with a little bit more pay, so maybe I wasn't as horrible as I thought I was. Uh, but um, one of the things that I was really struck by, and I would imagine we'll talk more about later, is yours is a pretty good company that was really trying to do the right thing. It was an incredibly, there was a huge amount of change in the utility industry at that particular point in time, and especially in California, as PG&E was, was being asked to adapt to being more competitive and not monopolistic. So there was a lot of change in the in the company. And they were fumbling, stumbling, bumbling their way through it a lot. But there were also a lot of great people uh, with a lot of great talent who came to work every day and wanted to be able to do their best. And, and I was struck with, and and this really became kind of the formative thought that's driven a lot of what I've done over the last 30 plus years, is there's there's just got to be a better way to do this. How do we get the people in the organization who really want to do a great job and an organization that wants them to do a great job, and yet they can't, how do we create great organizations where people can come to work and, and do their best, contribute their best every day? So that, that kind of started this Don Quixotic mission that I've been on for a little bit over 30 years now. How Rick connects into that was at about the time that I realized I wanted to do something different than just be – you know, a leader in the utility business, um, and, and I started having this thought about wanting to create great organizations where people could do their best. Rick was a partner in one of the consulting, in a small boutique consulting firm in the San Francisco Bay Area. They were trying to grow their business. They were interested in similar things that what I was interested in, and so I ended up leaving Pacific Gas Electric to join that consulting practice so that we could all work together. And, and Rick as a partner, Rick was still to this day, I mean, here we are, oh my gosh, so many so many years later, Rick is still an incredibly close friend, but I would also say he's was one of the great mentors that I mean, Rick's forgotten more about leadership than most of us will ever know. And he spent countless hours his patience in helping me begin to understand just even at the thumbnail level uh, all the stuff that he had going on in his head around leadership and organizations was just hugely hugely valuable uh, you know to me and then the 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 third person he asked about is art smuck uh, who again is another one of these people that I met a long time ago and to this day continues to be just an incredible friend of mine um, art was interesting uh, along my after I after I left PGE and got into the consulting world um, I had this opportunity to uh, start doing a lot of work they started as a client uh, Perrier Group of America, so they started as a client over a period of time. They were they were going through an enormous amount of growth. They went from being a client to being my only client, and then for a period of time, I actually went to work for Perrier Group of America as the uh, vice pr- president of learning and organizational development. But uh, early in my experience at Perrier, we were doing what we call an organizational assessment, and we use... Uh, team members from our client organizations to help with these assessment things they actually get better information than the outside consultants uh, can get they'll they'll hear things in ways that we would never hear things and just randomly art was on one of those organizational assessment teams i was struck probably within the first 2 hours of having cross paths with him that uh, even though we had done hundreds of those assessments with dozens of teams in different organizations, Art was just different. He was incredibly smart, incredibly articulate, was never afraid to voice his opinion, but did it in a a respectful kind of way, was never afraid to ask the tough questions. And then the other thing that became really obvious was he connected incredibly well with everybody that he talked to. And uh so I loved having him you know on the assessment team that we did in that particular part of uh, Perrier because he he was just phenomenal what he brought to the table, but it was also interesting to me we were we were in a small division tucked away in Texas, and art was like the training manager and and, and no disrespect to people who are training managers because at times I have been one, and I, a lot of great people who are training managers, but it was like, this guy's got skills and he's got capabilities that go far beyond what he's being asked to do by his organization. And And what it really came down to was that ability that he had to ask the tough questions to make the tough stand. He probably rubbed some people a long way, the wrong way over a period of time, and they buried him. Uh, a couple of years later, as I was forming up my team at Perrier. I was given the opportunity to have any four people inside the company that I wanted on my team. I was like, you get four number one draft choices, who do you want? And uh, I said, I'll take Art Smuck as number one. And, of course, the the people who had kind of buried him down in this part of the organization, were they were like, huh, what? Are you kidding? I'm like, look, he's, he, again, smartest, actually Grabs onto the things that that we're talking about, we're trying to do here, and he connects incredibly well with people. Absolutely. I want him on my team. And uh, so he he and I worked together at Perrier uh, for about five years after that. And uh, just I, I again, uh, like with most people that I cross paths with in my life, I learn more from them than I can possibly teach to them. Art was, was right at the point of the spear in terms of that. I, just phenomenal, his intellectual curiosity. Uh, after he left working for me, he took a job as a general manager of a small company uh, close to where we were. He, he grew that company from over a period of time from about $4 million in sales to about $400 million in sales. Got that company bought by a large uh, privately held company Became president and chief operating officer of that company, which he then grew, and then ultimately became CEO. And then that company got sold off to uh, Federal Express, and Art became CEO of uh, a really good-sized unit of Federal Express, and had uh, really great success. He's had just huge success uh, over the 23 years, and has always been again great friend. Uh, just an honor to get to know him and be able to work with him, but also a great leader. And has just really exhibited so many of the characteristics that, that we hope that, that leaders carry around. And uh, he's both, you know, he's, he's got both the incredible soft skills and, encourages people to be the best, but he's also got the ability to hold people rigorously accountable for performance and for how they play uh, within their organizations. And and so again, just, just a a great honor to be able to work with him and learn from him and uh, hang out with him over the years.
0: So you frame for us, these incredible relationships that you, that you've had and that you have fostered over the years. Talk to us a little bit about what consultants do at, at, Relate to your expertise because everyone—you look on LinkedIn, you look on social media. Everybody's a consultant. No, you know, you know <laughs> frame for us what that means in yeah. your context, and then how do you how are relationships used to leverage what consultants actually do?
1: Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, there can be and look when when I've been inside organizations, Pierre, I've I've had the same questions about consultants. Like, you know, what do you actually do? <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I first became a consultant, uh, my mom was even curious, you know, um, she was like, she, she was, uh, you know, her, her theory, she was a, was a school teacher, uh, ultimately uh, got a master's, uh, got a PhD in education. So she went from teaching to teaching teachers. And her theory was, if you can't do, you teach. If you can't teach, you teach teachers. And you know, I, I took it one step further. If you can't teach teachers, become a consultant and uh, leave everybody curious about what you actually do. Um, l- maybe a little bit more seriously. Here's what what I think consultants do when when they do their jobs really well is force. First of all, they 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 get people to think and maybe think a little bit differently. They they ask the question maybe that nobody else wants to ask or can ask, and and in that help people, and, and this has really been fundamental to a lot of the things that, that we think about around leadership, is they, they challenge people's fundamental underlying thinking, their mental models, their assumptions, their beliefs, their perceptions. Because as a consultant coming in from outside, I, I bring nothing other than Uh, maybe a different perspective. Maybe I've got some experience and maybe there's some structure that I can bring. But what what I really would bring is, can I help you see things differently? You make your own decisions about how you ultimately want to think. But if I can help you hold up to the mirror, hold up to the light, your own mental models, assumptions, beliefs, perceptions... That then gives you the opportunity to decide, is this going to make me most effective in this situation? Is how I think is this assumption or this belief or perception I have right? And does it help me as a leader, as a team member, as a performer, uh, be able to perform my best, get the best possible combination of results that I want to get? Or maybe there's a different way to think that leads to a different, better, more effective set of results in terms of what I'm trying to do here.
0: There's a side of the table as a consultant that you sit on and you help guide people, challenge their thinking, help them see things in a different perspective. But there have been times in your career that you said, okay, I'm on the consulting side. Let me go back to the other side of the table. Let me get out of the theory for a little bit and get to where the rubber meets the road. Why were those times pivotal for, for your consulting work and your perspective? And why did you choose, choose to do that?
1: Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. Uh, the, the, been a couple of those opportunities, I, I call them almost the sabbaticals from the consulting practice uh, where I've gone and had a real job for a living. Uh, the, the first of those sabbaticals was at, uh, again, Perrier Group of America. Uh, here was this company that uh, they f- uh, I interacted, I crossed paths with Perrier right when they started putting uh, bottled water Uh, into plastic refreshment size bottles instead of the big five gallon, you know, up and down the street uh, bottles that uh, was still commonplace, but were, that was the only way you could buy bottled water in the, in the mid 1990s. And all of a sudden the growth took off when they started doing the refreshment beverage business. And like I said, I I started as a, uh, they were a client and then they became my only client. And I was really, attracted to this puzzle that we were trying to solve, which was the, the company at that particular time had been cobbled together uh, through the acquisition of a series of regional spring brands, brands of bottled water. Arrowhead in California, Calistoga, Northern California, all the way to Poland Spring, uh, water in the, in the Northeast part of the United States. Uh, Zephyr Hills in Florida, Ozark in Texas, and a few other brands. And so you you had this organization that was growing dramatically, had no discernible culture per se. Uh, They had 85 different cultures and subcultures we counted at one point in time. Uh, And and because of that growth, you think you run back to the mid-1990s, Coca-Cola and Pepsi weren't in the bottled water business yet. The bottled water business wasn't big enough. Uh, yet We were the company was on a growth pattern that said, man, at, at the point that Perrier Group of America hits a billion dollars in sales, everybody's going to be interested. So he got this, this company that's been cobbled together, that's been rolled up, that on, in, in, the, in the best of those 85 subcultures is really good you had people really, when, when you talk about my kind of personal mission of creating great organizations where people can be their best, there, we had some of that. In some of our divisions, we really had that. On the other hand, we had some divisions where it was like, oh, this, this is almost hard to look at in terms of the treatment of people. So you had this incredibly broad distribution curve You know that with the culture that diverse and spread out and different and that there was going to be a point in time that we were going to be trying to compete against some of the best companies in the world in Coca-Cola and Pepsi. We weren't prepared for that. And then the other part of it was we were growing so fast. We were literally doubling the size of the business year over year. Now, in the first year, that's one bottling line in one bottling plant. That's not a lot, but by the time we got out five or six years, that was four bottling lines in each of new f- four new bottling plants, and it was going to take an enormous amount of leadership talent to be able to fuel that growth and, and not actually limit the growth. And so as my relationship with Perrier grew, it, it was like this grand experiment uh it, it, for somebody who's been in the world of, of trying to create great organizations, this was going to be one of the grand experiments. And so when Kim Jeffrey and I, who is the president and CEO of Perrier Group of America, and I was doing a lot of work with him and he and I were talking and he proposed the idea first to actually have a team of Perrier people working for me while I was still a consultant. And then later it evolved into me going to work for him. It really was. I, I I literally took a day away, went and sat in the middle of a park and thought about this opportunity. And do I really want to leave the consulting practice to go do this grand experiment? And really, at the end of the day, I couldn't resist the opportunity. You know, how do you shape this? And can you really can you really out of out of the, the, the broad range of subcultures we had, can you form something that's much more coherent, cohesive, much more positive, consistently positive across the organization, where you can begin to grow the kind of leaders it takes to fuel that kind of growth. And so I was I was just so intrigued by the puzzle. I couldn't say no. So so that was that was kind of that was the first sabbatical. And then, and then the, the second sabbatical after I left Perrier, we'd grown and we, we just got to the point where it was time to go back to the consulting practice. I, I had known that it I wasn't going to, once the experiment was over, I'd known and Kim and I had agreed up front that there would be a point in time that, uh, you know, I would wander back to my consulting life and they would merrily go on their way. So I've been back in the consulting practice for a couple of years and uh, an old client of mine uh, called up who I'd done a lot of work with in the hotel and resort business. And one of their signature properties was failing after the recession of 2000, 2001, the the property had fallen on pretty rough times. The the guests had disappeared and uh, they were, they were really struggling and and on the verge of of bankruptcy. And uh, they called me up and they said, Hey, you want to help us turn this around? Now, I, I thought it was the standard you know, consulting project of, of turning a business around, which really means I go in, I'm the bad guy, lay off a whole bunch of people, fire everybody, restructure it, and then I leave. And that's, that's really exactly what happened except about a week after I left and we had completed all that hard work of the restructuring and the laying off people and, 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 and asking, having to do the, the really tough and I, you, you hate doing it, but sometimes you, it has to be done of restructuring an organization that way. They called me up and they said, Hey, um, that was really cool work. We did restructuring everything. The, uh, the, the challenge is, uh, in the process of restructuring it all, we don't actually have anybody to run the place. W- would you come back and and help lead the organization through the turnaround?" And I was like, well, okay, if, if you don't mind hiring somebody that has zero history, experience running restaurants, running hotels, running resorts, okay, uh, sounds like a pretty good deal. And uh, in, in what might have been one of the worst hiring decisions ever, uh, they went ahead and hired me and brought me back in. And I was the uh, interim uh, chief operating officer and general manager for about a year and a half while we, you know, and I called it the kind of the trifecta of doom. Uh, the guests had left and, and even though the organization had a great brand name, which was important and, and had a great brand relationship because we would have had nothing to build on if we hadn't had a great brand. But we it had become pretty tarnished. But people, the the potential guests, still had a lot of faith in the place. And our, as I mentioned, our the team was completely disenfranchised. Um, Nobody had had a raise in five years. They'd had to, they the team had watched the place in this state of decline, and we had no cash. So with no cash, disenfranchised teams and and the guests weren't coming to visit us. How do you fix that? And uh, so it was, again, it was like the great puzzle. How do, you, how do you take all these puzzle pieces and reassemble it into something that that can really work? And uh, it, and, and the only way, uh, there's an advertising uh, campaign uh, running these days about the only way is through. And that really was it. The only way was through. And in this particular case, it was we had to re-engage the team. And so I just got in the habit. Of visiting our 1,200 team members on a regular basis. I would go see them in their groups uh, every morning before shift, every afternoon at, in the evening after shift, whenever, and and help them just get reconnected to what we were trying to do, explain to them that the only way we could solve this was give people great guest experiences. And since we didn't have a whole lot of money to spend on the resort, it was about the team and what the team could do. And they, uh, you know, they took it completely on faith that I had any clue of what I was talking about. And uh, they did it and they started delivering great experiences to the guests. So the guests started returning, which gave us a little bit of money to reinvest in the resort. It took us about nine months to get from very cash flow negative to cash flow positive positive. It was a complete tribute to the team and their willingness, again, to just take completely on faith and go deliver those great experiences that brought the guests back, which then got the revenue flow in which we could then reinvest back in the team and the resort. And it became it went from kind of the doom loop to becoming a pretty good virtuous cycle.
0: You talk about in your book, this space, this gap between, okay, this mm-hmm. is what we're going to do. And sometimes teams have the offsites, they have those wonderful, amazing sessions and everybody's, you know, together and it makes sense and, and we have the clarion call. But then there's the day where we actually have to do what we said we were going to do. Why, why, why is that such a huge gap for organizations between, okay, here's our strategy and now let's implement the thing so that we can actually get to where we're trying to go.
1: Yeah. Uh I, I think sometimes it's uh it's a little bit like my um my golf swing or my tennis swing. I was playing tennis uh, 10 or 15 years ago with a good friend of mine who was also a practicing psychologist. And uh, one of the things I, I would routinely, you know, I'm, I'm a decent athlete, not a great athlete by any stretch of the imagination, but there are times you just completely miss the ball uh, or you hit it off the frame of the racket or you hit it off the toe of the golf club. And uh, the the guy that I was playing tennis with that day, he said, look, here's here's what happens is psychologically your mind finishes the shot before your body does. And, and so your mind has moved on to someplace else while your body is still in the process of execution. But as soon as you take your eye off the ball to think about the next shot or to think about where that drive is going down the fairway, because your mind is on to the next thing, it's getting ready to play the next shot on the golf course you miss the shot that you're working on. I, I think it, it's actually a pretty fair analogy to what happens in organizations. We hold the offsite. We go, maybe maybe it's a, I've actually been working with a, a client on a strategy process virtually uh, where it hasn't been the classic two-day offsite. It's been a series of two-hour conference calls spread over several months. And so we've been working on strategy so much that that you understand so crisply where you want to position yourself in the marketplace to be successful. And then I think what happens organizationally and it happens more this way, we miss more shots than, than we hit. Uh, organizationally, we take our eye off the ball. Uh, we feel like it's been done or we're doing the strategy at the senior levels of the organization. Even if that's a a small business running out of the garage, being working out of the garage, you, you, put all this effort into visualizing, creating the strategy, your mind moves on to something else. And then we don't do the fundamental blocking and tackling of the execution. We don't keep our eyes on the ball. We've moved on. And so the execution just falls off the edge of the table. And so sometimes three months, six months, a year in the future, somebody goes, Hey, whatever happened to the strategy?
0: Uh, I don't know. Right you outline you outline in your book these these gears, the seven gears of execution. Uh, first, w- why use the terminology of gears and then take us through these first three, the focus, the alignment, and the promotion of a culture of communication. So why gears? and then the first three as a part yeah. of the strategy.
1: Okay, good question. Uh, why gears? Uh, it's interesting in the writing of the book, the gears was one of the last thoughts that I stumbled on. We we knew there are these seven things, or we believe there are these seven things that fundamentally, when they're aligned and working together, you really do a great job of c- connecting strategy to results. Uh, so we had the seven ideas, and we had lots of the writing done, and we y- were looking at all the different ways we can arrange those seven things, and it just struck me one day that it's not pyramids, it's not circles, it's like it's something else, right? And, and I started sketching one day and it just, maybe because I have an engineering background, um, which, which was a bit of a concern for me, is wait a minute, it, we've got a strategy, we've got the results we're trying to get to, aren't we really connecting it through a series of gears that, you know, the strategy, kind of moves things, and then it turns this gear, which turns that gear. And then if if all the gears turn in motion together with a limited amount of friction, then we do a much better job of connecting strategy to the real results we get. And then the more I played with the idea and I started sharing it with people and, and I didn't share it with just engineers because I knew the engineers would eat it up. Uh, I started sharing it with, with artists and other writers and people that were more creative and people that would maybe, maybe musicians who've never thought about gears in their whole lives. And I, I kept waiting for somebody to say, this is stupid. This is like the dumbest idea I've ever heard. It's like engineer stuff. And nobody did. Everybody said, oh, I get it. And then, and then kind of the next thing about that, Pierre, was the idea that, that really began to resonate is a lot of times when we're trying to change organizations, we're trying to change everything at once. And it, and it becomes this huge lift that becomes almost impossible. And, and part of what happened with the metaphor around the gears was we realized, I don't have to fix seven gears at once. I can fix one. And if I go fix one today and or this week or this month, we're going to be a little bit better. And then next month, we're going to realize that there's a different gear that needs some work and we can go work on it and then we'll go find another gear. And and so I don't have to, I don't have to eat the whole elephant. I can just eat a piece of the elephant at a time and then over, you know, whatever time it takes, whether that's a month or six months or a year or two years, as we keep aligning those gears then every step up, we're we're going to get better than we were before, and and so that that really began to resonate when we realized we can break this into pieces and we don't have to do everything. It became a lot easier for people to attach to and realize that they had a role in in, a, in aligning the gears. Your other question then about the the first three, what we call the foundation gears or the environment gears, it's it's creating the environment where execution can happen, where we can drive strategy to results. So we got these seven things. And the first three are the environment gears. And I'm sure we'll talk about the other four in a bit, which are the the performance gears. So the environment gears are about creating the environment where strategy to results can really happen. And and there, there are three gears within there. The first is what we call right, right, right. It's the idea of having the right people in the right roles with the right capabilities. Uh, I think it was, uh, you know, Jim Collins that said that, you know, the best vision without the right people is just an illusion or you know, I've probably completely butchered what, what Jim said, but you got to have the right people with the right roles with the right capabilities. Uh, and, and, and that has lots of implications in it, in terms of, first of all, who are the right people for our organization? Who are the people we need? What skills, what talents, what values, uh, do we need people to have to join our organization? How do we get those people completely psychologically engaged in performing their best every day? So what do we have to do inside the organization to create that environment? And then how do we grow people's skills and capabilities over a period of time, not just to be the best that they can be in their role today, but you think about how quickly our organizations are evolving and the work that's uh, that, and how quickly the work evolves. We, we, as as an organization, we have to have a commitment to grow people's skills and capabilities over time and help them adapt to some future that none of us can possibly describe today. So right, right, right. And then the the second of the uh, environment gears is what we call uh, aligning the architecture. Uh, You know, thinking about the systems, the structures and the processes and the culture that taken together, I like the phrase, we, we create organizational gravity. The, that architecture, the system structures, processes and culture, instead of us having to get people to do stuff every day, when when we get that architecture aligned, so we get the right compensation system or we're promoting the right people or we're training and developing people to the right set of skills and capabilities our, and our, our culture is aligned to the strategy, then what that does is it creates this unseen force, the organizational gravity that pulls people in the right direction. And then the third thing that we've seen in organizations that are better at driving strategy to results than others is that, that third uh, environment gear around the culture of communications. Uh, I, I call it, I call it the unicorn. Because there are a lot of organizations that I would bet 95% of the organizations that I walk into, I ask people, you know, what, what, what are your number one, two, or three problems? Something about communications is going to pop up in the top one or two. You know, how we communicate up, down, sideways, diagonally. Uh, it, do we have a, a need to know theory about sharing information? Or do we have, is our paradigm, who else needs to know? And so do we make sure that everybody's got the information that they need when they need it to make the best possible decisions? Can people voice concerns? Do we listen? How, how empathetically do leaders listen to people, which, which helps then reinforce the engagement? You know, again, go, it kind of ties back to right, right, right. People are more engaged when people when they're when they're listened to. And so the communications and then the other part of, of that culture of communications is do we, how do we deal with conflict? how do we deal with the tough conversations? Have we built a culture that is trusting and respectful enough enough that we can all have the tough conversations with each other. Um, So, and create that level of accountability that we need to create so that we can be the best and and not just okay.
0: I know what happened before you started writing the book. You know, you mentioned that the gear terminology came, you know, a little bit later, but at what point did you, even if you didn't codify them this way, did you come to the clarity that these environmental factors need to be in place in order to experience organizational turnaround and organizational health?
1: Yeah, we had. Um, I had done a lot of work uh, on the 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 back four gears, what we call the performance gears that we we haven't talked about yet with. Uh, clients over the years clients in pretty good organizations where things were fundamentally okay and it was really just a matter of taking that strategy and cascading it down through the organization so everybody could play their role most effectively as I got ready to write the book and it, it was really going to be those first the, those last four the performance gears but as I reflected on it I was like uh, this is these are necessary. And I know that they work well in organizations that are fundamentally pretty good already, but they're not quite universal enough. What's, what's missing? So we started going back through all the work we had done with clients over the years and said, what are, what are some of the key themes of the things that we've done with people or, or the things that we've seen that people have really struggled with? And as, as we looked at thematically all of that work, it really just kept coming back to those three things. Organizations that have the right people in the right roles with the right capabilities, organizations that had aligned the architecture or had had some kind of struggle and then had gone through the process of aligning the architecture. And then again, the, the seeing the unicorns and seeing how much better those unicorns, those rare species that we cross paths with occasionally that had that culture of communications seeing how much better they outperformed. Even uh, one of the places was really striking for us. We were doing one of those organizational assessment kind of things uh, in an organization where they'd had, they'd asked us to look at the the best performing operations, their, their view of their best performing operations. And the first place we went into, uh, we were interviewing a bunch of people one afternoon. We, the, the team of, uh, we had seven seven of us, two outside consultants and five internal people interview about twenty people one afternoon. We're debriefing uh, that that set of interviews over dinner that night, dinner and beer and wine, of course. Uh, and we start asked people to tell me the story of what they learned in the interviews. And every person said that every interview had started with the people person being interviewed saying, "This is the greatest place I've ever worked." And then invariably, our team members asked them, why is this the greatest place they ever worked? And they they talked about how great the communications was. And at first, I thought we were being punked. I'm like, how did we do 20 interviews? And we got exactly the same response to the first two questions. I was sure we were being punked. We'd been set up for failure. And then, as but the stories were real. What people told us about what the communications looked like, it was so real. It was like, Ah, oh, crap, we're not being punked. It really is this way. and then somebody in the group said, "I think we just cross paths with a unicorn and uh, and and so what we've again as we looked at it, we knew the performance gears, how you set goals, how you build, having scorecards that that track performance, uh, identifying the performance drivers, those behaviors that really distinguish good from great performance or average from great performance, and then follow up, follow through to create accountability. We, we knew those were important. As we looked at all the things that we had done, we realized right people, right roles, with the right capabilities, aligning the architecture and that commun- culture of communications, you take that, you add those to the gears. Now now you've got something. Again, it's, is it perfect? I wouldn't ever begin to argue that it was perfect, but does it get us directionally way farther down the road to driving the results if we align those seven? Absolutely.
0: Sean, you teased it out just a little bit, but I'm going to ask you to take just a little bit of time and drill down deeper on the importance of goal, of results-oriented goals, scorecards, performance drivers, and the follow-up and follow-through. Why is that so vital, and why do we spend a lot of time on it traditionally, teaching and training, and why is that the case?
1: Yeah, so you're right. Pierre, we spend a lot of time on these things, uh, and yet we still don't get it right. And, and so that uh, I was challenged by a client probably pretty close to 10 years ago now. And, and again, it was one of these organizations that was pretty good. They, they got a lot of the first three gears well, so that we really were just talking about the performance gears, and, and they, they, they recognized that they had good strategy, yet they weren't getting the execution and so we we were looking at it. We're like, okay, why are we not getting execution? And, and we started, so then we started talking to people about, okay, tell me, let's just, let's try one. Uh, let's your goals. Tell me how well your goals are connected to your organization strategy. And people just looked at me with like a, a blank face. And I said, what. Well, we were talking about a completely different language. And then we started, we have been doing a, a game that we call five on five. We've been doing that for uh, 30 years. And, and the game is really simple. I uh, ask performers in an organization to write down their top five goals, what they what they think their most critical goals are within the organization. And we ask their managers to write down what they think the performer's top five goals are. So managers write down what, what my goals are. I write down what I think my goals are. We try to match the list of the two lists of five. And, and what we found is we did that was most of the time, not more than two out of the five actually match. And, and so right away, you see this gap between if if this is the strategy and let's say the managers are right in terms of the five goals that they write down that best represent that organization strategy. And yet the people that are responsible for doing the work only two of their five goals match what's on the manager's list. Well, what that means is 60% of the time, people aren't working on the stuff they need to be working on to execute strategy. So there's there's clearly there's a there's a major disconnect right there. So then we just began to pull the thread. So goals, if I've got goals, then I need to know how I'm tracking the goals, which which lead to the conversation around visible scorecards. And, and here's the analogy. Why are scorecards important? Just imagine yourself driving down the street and you go by a playground where there, there are two sets of kids playing basketball on courts next to each other. And on, on one court, the kids are keeping score. And on another court, they're not keeping score. Now, everybody may be having fun. But how quickly would you be able to figure out, without being told, how quickly would you be able to figure out which court the kids were keeping score on and which ones they weren't keeping score on? For most of us, you can figure that out in about 10 seconds, right? Because what happens on the, on the court where the kids are keeping score? First of all, there's more intensity. Uh, second of all, there's probably more feedback. Um, you know, they're making better decisions about who gets the ball in what situation so they can score because they want to keep the court. They don't want to give up the court to whoever's got next. And so, so having a scorecard really drives performance. It gives people the picture of where they need to get to. uh, And and we like to see scorecards that allow you to change the outcome of the game while you're still being, while it's still being played. Right. And so, you have goals now, and, and to back up a little bit, we like result-oriented goals. A lot of people have uh, activity-based goals. So you think about the salesperson whose goal is to make 10 sales calls a day. Well, you can generate a lot of activity making 10 sales calls a day and never sell anything. <laughs> and so we we like result-oriented goals where we, what do we want that salesperson to do? Well, we want that salesperson to increase their sales from 100,000 to 150,000 units this year or by the end of the year. So result-oriented goals where you got to start and end and a time frame, And then you attach to it a scorecard. So now the salesperson knows how they're doing or the operator on the production line knows how they're doing or the customer service rep answering telephones is getting feedback about how effectively they're connecting with customers. So now you got results, Resolve oriented goals, you got a scorecard to go along with it so people can adjust their behaviors because people want to win. Everybody wants to win. We just have to give them the right scorecard to let them know how they're doing. Um, creates a huge amount of ownership and responsibility when I own the scorecard. And then the, the next of the performance gears is that one around performance drivers, which are really it's a, it's a fancy term, but it's, it's all encompassing. It's the tasks, it's the behaviors, it's the activities that I undertake to best hit my goals and to move the needles on the scorecard. And what we've found is that there are usually, most of us are pretty good at some things in our job and pretty similar. Most mo- All salespeople do many things similar. They're relatively, there's a small set of two or three or maybe five things that the best performers do that are a little bit different than what the average and mediocre performers do. Those are the performance drivers. So if we can help people think through the process of what are the things that I might do that deliver great performance, not just good performance, and then we help people hone the skills and capabilities through deliberate or purposeful practice to just whether you're, whether you're trying to hit a baseball uh, or play the violin or sell better or be a customer service rep or be a more effective leader, there are probably a few things that distinguish good from great leaders. And so if we can help people figure out what those things are and then build their capabilities, they're going to move the needles on their scorecard better and better hit their goals. And in the last, the last gear, follow-up, follow-through, as a good friend of mine said, that's the glue that holds everything together. So in follow-up, follow-through there, there are two components of it. One is to generate learning because I can't tell you on a day-in and day-out basis if you've got the right goals or if your scorecard's right, or if you've got the right performance drivers. But if we have this process where we're constantly generating learning and thinking about, okay, if I'm not hitting my target, is it because the target's right? Or is it because I'm not executing on my performance drivers? So learning first, but then the second part of it is there ultimately has to be accountability for performance and results. And so in that follow-up follow-through process, we want to make sure that people are ultimately held accountable for being great citizens within their organization, but also for hitting the results, hitting those goals and hitting the, d- delivering the results that they're supposed to deliver.
0: Tell us a story, a quick story about an experience where you took an organization or leaders in an organization through this framework and maybe they were really good. At one section, maybe they were really good in environment, like you were saying before, really focused on performance. But when you brought all the pieces together, it was like the light bulb went off. And you know, maybe they said, "I don't know why no one explained it to us." This, like the no one explained it to us this way before. One yeah. of those stories of you know that says this is why you do the work that you do.
1: Yeah, I think that that connects a lot of dots, Pierre. The whole idea of just getting people to think a little bit differently. Uh, we were working with a leadership team of a of a struggling division of an organization uh, probably seven or eight years ago now. And look they they weren't going to go out of business. they were well funded, but they were not they were the company was well capitalized, so it wasn't that kind of a struggle. But they were really struggling uh, f- trying to figure out they had uh, done done a significant amount of reconstruction in their facility. And they were really struggling, uh, new product lines, new production lines, all kinds of stuff. And they were, they were really struggling to get the profitability. It was just taking way longer than it should ever have taken. And we, we had the, the 25 leaders in that division around a U-shaped table one day. And just almost randomly, we asked those 25 leaders to write down the top three things that they thought the division needed to do to start performing better? What were the top three priorities to be able to execute better? Now we thought, okay, 25 leaders, each of them is going to generate a list of three. There's going to be a lot of overlap. We're probably going to get maybe 30, 35 unique items with lots of overlap. When we, when we got the list and we picked it up and looked at it, we put all the lists together. What we had it ended up being 75 unique items. Every list was different. So we had 25 leaders, all who identified what they thought the top three priorities were, and it really ended up becoming 75 different top priorities. We just laid that out from them in front of them. And we said, okay, if, if you all are not aligned at your level at, in any kind of a way, what are the chances that the other 300 people in your organization are aligned? And and it was one of those blinding, just a simple 10, 15 minute exercise that was became the blinding flash, the obvious that, that really it completely reconfigured their thinking about what they needed to do to be able to be successful and then cascade that
0: down to their teams. Say I'm a leader and you know, I'm struggling with some of the very things that you talked about just now and throughout our conversation Maybe our performance section is really good, but our environment is tough. Or we have, you know, maybe we say we have a good culture or, you know, we get along great. It's a great place to work. But in terms of actually doing what we're called to do as an organization, there's a gap there. And if I'm a leader struggling with this and say I'm in the bookstore, I'm I'm on Amazon.com or wherever I I buy books, and I come across the title, uh, Get in Gear. Why should I pick this book to add to my toolkit, my conversation with my staff?
1: Yeah, I I think um, number one is regardless of what those challenges are that you're facing, uh, I'm pretty confident that somewhere in those seven gears, you'll find something that will be helpful to you. Uh, And so if it's just that concept of playing five on five, and, and I would encourage leaders in an organization, play five on five with your bosses play five on five with your teammates and you get aligned to what your manager need is expecting of you. And then you get your team aligned to that. You'll be better. Uh, but maybe it is a cultural issue or maybe it is a a culture of communications issue. Uh, I think people will find something in that book that they can attach to and, and and, and even though the concepts are relatively simple, and sometimes they seem like we ought to know these things, the fact mm-hmm. is that we we don't know these. We it's it's almost unlearning in some ways than it is learning. But but maybe you'll find some hints in there. Uh, the other thing is we we tried to I tried to make the book as easy reading as possible. So there is the expository text of hey think about this do this. Uh, but we also tell a lot of stories that I think people find it easy to attach to and think about how do I connect this to real life? So it's not just this like textbooky kind of thing. And then the last part of it is in, in every chapter we, we give, we pose some questions to get you thinking. And we also give you, if you can't think of anything else, we give you some simple lists of four or five things that you might try to experiment with and see if you can have some successes with it. So it ultimately becomes, man, you could it's a, it's a nice little, um, guide, and people can play with it, experiment with it, and find out what connects for them that helps them be more effective in what they're trying to do.
0: I call this section of the podcast Shameless Plug Time. This is where you let people know the URL, social media handles, if there's a coupon to download, whatever it is. How can we get connected with you? How can we get a copy of the book and then follow up with your work and your services?
1: Awesome. Uh, the best way to connect with us is just through our website, WWICI.com. Again, it's WWICI.com. Once you get there, it's going to funnel you uh, to the uh, opportunities that uh, connect you to the book. Uh, we've got the, we're, we're actually trying to create a community of what we call gearheads. Uh, People who are all about driving strategy to results in their organizations, fine tuning, aligning those gears and connecting with each other will get you connected into the gearhead community and, uh, you know, give you an opportunity to buy the book, too, if you haven't already uh, haven't already picked one up.
0: We'll be sure to include that in the show links so that the people who are listening to this right now can be just one click away and you won't have any excuse at all. My guest on this episode of Leading Wild Green Podcast has been Sean Ryan, author of the book Get In Gear, The Seven Gears That Drive Strategy to Results. Sean, thanks for being my guest today.
1: Pierre, thanks for having me on. It's been a blast. Really enjoyed it
0: great conversation with Sean Ryan about his new book, Get In Gear, seven gears that drive strategy to results. Now, we left some links in the show notes for you to get your copy of Sean's book, for you to follow up on his work, and to learn more information about how you and your team can get in gear. Don't forget to check out the Next Step Summit, at least the replay of the Next Step Summit. We left those links in the show notes as well. And there's still time for us to work together as we set a strategy to start 2021 on the right foot, prcquinn.com slash coaching to check that out. Hey, that's all I got for this episode of the Leading Wild Green podcast. You know, it's my mission to help you live, learn and lead with confidence. So until next time, take care and God bless.